I wanted to tell a story of solidarity, of people coming together from different parts of the country, from different backgrounds, to make common cause in unexpected ways, to move forward. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here at Columbia. And today we're going to hear a conversation about the high-profile political documentary, Knock Down the House. But first, I'm joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, who has had a very busy year so far because she runs the DuPont Columbia Awards, and we just had our 2020 DuPont ceremony a few weeks ago. That's right. Hi, Abby. It was, I'm going to say, a spectacular evening with our spectacular hosts. We had CNN's Christiane Amanpour, who was in from London, and the New York Times' Michael Barbaro. He is the host of the podcast, The Daily. Yeah, there were powerful speeches at the ceremony from reporters like CNN's Clarissa Ward and PBS's Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr., among many others. Yes, we had doc filmmakers Kim Reed and Tiffany Shung, and we kicked it off with 60 Minutes correspondents Scott Pelley and Sharon Alfonsi, who did some outstanding immigration coverage this year. You and I talk a lot about this, Lisa, but beyond it being a night to honor the winners of outstanding audio and video reporting and the chance to fangirl and reconnect with old colleagues, it's also just a really inspiring evening. I I heard that from a lot of people afterwards. We chose short clips during the ceremony that spotlight each winning work, and they're really moving, and they're energizing, and the whole thing just reminds you about the mission and the fact that people out there are continuing to do the important and the vital journalism that we need. Our own Columbia University president, Lisey Bollinger, was also there. He presented the final award of the night to Rachel Maddow for her podcast, Bagman, which is about the corruption of Vice President Spiro Agnew back in the 70s. And Rachel actually thanked Agnew's ghost for reminding us all that we've been through some bad political times in the past and the press didn't walk away from that then. So as she said, we got this. So that brings us to today's episode. Um, I think with everything happening politically right now in the country between the impeachment and the 2020 presidential campaigns, this episode is a timely reminder of the energy that drove our last election cycle in 2018 when the Democrats won the House with some unexpected victories from people who'd never imagined themselves in politics before. That's right. And while not everyone in our recent Film Friday screening knocked down the House won their race, this is a film about politics for politicos and non-politicos alike. It's really a story of loss, hope, and rooting for the underdog. The film gained a lot of attention, um, if you have not heard of it, because it follows the popular Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as she is known. She rose to political stardom, and the film tracked her every step of the way. She beat the powerful incumbent in New York, and she found herself transformed from a bartender to a very, very popular congresswoman. Right, and viewers go along that journey with her, which really was remarkable. It also follows three other women seeking political office around the country at the same time as AOC. Cori Bush, who was running for Congress in Missouri, Amy Villela, who was running in Nevada, and Paula Jean Swearingen, who was running for Senate in West Virginia. Now, if you are one of those politicos we mentioned earlier, you might know that none of those three women won their races. But we're gonna hear from director Rachel Lears about why that's okay at least when we're talking good cinema. So now, without further ado, let's go to this conversation moderated by Professor Betsy West with director Rachel Lears. And as always, it's an edited conversation. 
us the story of how you got the idea and the steps that you took to start making this film and, and doing the amazing casting <laughs> that you did. So this film, I had the idea for it in the wake of the 2016 election. I, I, the film itself is not, um, not only a response to the election, but I wanted to contribute something uh, to the national conversation in that moment. Um, I had heard about this project of recruiting ordinary working people around the country uh, who did have extraordinary records of service to run for Congress all over the place. And, and the idea was to build this alternative path to power so that ordinary people could, who, who couldn't otherwise, wouldn't be expected to run for Congress, um, would, would potentially have a chance by doing it in this unified slate. Uh, um, everyone would reject corporate money and they would do small dollar donation fundraising as a national project. Um, so I reached out to the organizers behind that. Um, and uh, convinced them to uh, let me follow the project. And over the course of the next several months, I interviewed probably um, 25 uh, candidates and potential candidates. Uh, the organizations were in the process of gathering over 10,000 crowdsourced nominations at that point and going through them. And, and they would connect me with folks or I would go to their events where they'd be bringing potential candidates together. So at the, the event in Kentucky that you see here was their first candidate summit, and actually that's where I met Alexandria and Corey, and was very interested in working with both of them at the time. Um, but as, uh, as fate would have it, Alexandria was in New York, and so were we. And uh, on a very limited budget, I mean, uh, we, we were fitting it in between freelance jobs at the time. So, um, we were able to shoot more with her at, at those early stages than with the others as we uh, continued uh, talking to folks and, and figuring out who the rest of the characters would be and, uh, and all of that. And eventually I was really drawn to these four women because their personal stories were so strong. I knew that we needed that. You need that for a documentary in general, but um, particularly when you're following long shot races. I mean, we didn't have the kind of budget where you could, you know, follow 20 races and just end up telling the story of the one that wins. We needed to make sure these these characters would be worth watching, win or lose. You know, when you went down to Kentucky and you met these women, I mean, did you have a sense of AOC and her potential? Well, yes and no. I mean, of course, uh, we were drawn to her and uh, immediately wanted to start working with her. But I don't think anyone predicted how things would go. When she won the primary, um, things had already been accelerating with her campaign for, for a month or two. She'd already gained a national profile in a lot of ways. But, it, but as, as you see in the film, you know, the, uh, the powers that be were still dismissing her chances. And um, I, I don't think her opponent took her very seriously. And when she did win, the media just superstorm that surrounded that, I don't think anyone predicted exactly what would happen. Yeah, obviously, I mean, a film like this depends on access. I guess they're underdog candidates in a way, so they wanted access. Or was it a problem to get the kind of personal, up-close access that you did with these four women? Yeah, so everyone that I spoke to was, there wasn't a single candidate I spoke to who said, nah, I don't want to be in your documentary. Everyone was willing to do it. They were all struggling to get media attention. I mean, nobody was covering these stories. 
um, so everyone was game, but then of course it's a long process of negotiating the trust to be able to really be there when things are happening and to get those those intimate moments and to really you know have interviews that can um, reveal further layers you know so that the, um, that they feel comfortable enough with you to share layers beyond what they're sharing with um, with ordinary journalists because by the time the elections rolled around I mean I, I think all four of them were were m much more accustomed to talking to press than they had been at the beginning and you know they had their talking points and, and their uh, agendas for what they wanted to get across but as a filmmaker you really have to get beyond that so that's a process of, of building trust. How much pressure was there to make this film all about AOC? Uh, that's an interesting question. So um, I think, you know, after she won her primary and there was a, a media spotlight on her, uh, uh, press started finding out about the film and industry started finding out about the film and we got a lot of interest from um, from distributors actually at that point. And, and, and people did ask, uh, you know, why don't you just make it about her? And and we said you don't you don't know what else we have like the media isn't covering it but i know that there's real cinema there too you know going through those election nights with amy which is such a devastating experience um, bringing up everything she's been through with her daughter and then this incredibly joyful experience two weeks later with Alexandria. That was pretty much the widest range of human emotion that I've experienced in a two-week period in yeah. my life. And actually, you know, at the beginning of this project, we knew it would be about loss. We didn't know whether we'd have a victory, but we knew at some level it would be about loss and that what you can reveal um, about the way power works in this country and the, and the type of strength you have to have as a human being to challenge it, a lot of that is revealed in loss, certainly as much as in victory. So at the end of the day, we, we felt like it was really central to the story to include both. And, and you know, we stuck with the original concept of each of these four women bringing something to the table so that the, the group of them was greater than the sum of the parts. And, um, you know, obviously there's more screen time for Alexandria than the others. We kind of knew from before she won that that would be the case, because as I said, we had more material with her. But um, uh, I do think, too, that her, the stakes of her story and her victory are stronger because as a viewer you go through these losses yeah. with the other candidates. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. So, um, you know, we're here at Columbia Journalism School. Do you think of this documentary as a journalistic documentary? I do. Um, my background is in anthropology. So I did a PhD in anthropology at NYU and, and learned filmmaking as part of that. And um, so the ethnographic approach is, it's just so much in common with long form, long term journalistic reporting. Um, you have to build relationships and build trust. You have um, a responsibility to fact check and you know understand your subject's perspectives, but also triangulate and find other perspectives so that you can you know make sure you're representing what you find with integrity. You know, so so many of those methods I think are are very similar. I think I knew we were covering a story that was going to be big and getting bigger. I mean, when we were writing our initial grant applications, it was like, this is going to be a big story in 2018, guys, just just wait. So I think, it, you know, as journalists, too, you're always trying to sniff out 
um, what is what's going on that isn't getting covered that is going to be you know emerging as part of a zeitgeist personally it's kind of a weird thing to say but I don't believe in objectivity per se in the sense of I mean obviously I believe in truth and I believe in facts but Good. yeah of course yeah, I'm not gonna <laughs> We're say happy that. About that, that that's not uh, up for <laughs> discussion here but um, I don't believe that every side has a simple kind every, every story has a simple two side kind of construction that if you have to get both sides of it otherwise it's not true um, I think that you know, some stories do of course but I think there's also a lot to be said for um, centering the experience of, of individuals while also adding layers that show the complexity and the um, sociocultural, political context. And so that's what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker, is really create layers, you know, a human story that a lot of people can relate to while adding all kinds of layers about the structural context for what's going on. As you said, you work closely with this organization that was recruiting these candidates. I mean, did you have any obligation to them to show cuts or to have you know a, a, any kind of participation in the result of the film? Yeah, thank you for asking that because I yeah. forgot to add something really important yeah. about my, my journalistic relationship with these subjects. So I made very clear to them from the very beginning that we were independent that we had 100% editorial control. Um, we were starting our project with a fiscal sponsor uh, to receive 501c3 donations, so we also had to abide by the 501c3 codes of not uh, doing anything that would directly support any campaigns. So, so we made very clear to everyone that we weren't gonna give them any of our footage for ads or promotional materials, and, and that in fact it was in their interest to let us be independent. Um, because uh, you know we felt that it, it lent legitimacy to the project and it was it, very important to us it just wasn't you know up for discussion of course they kept asking <laughs> can we please get some footage and yeah I, you know it happens <laughs> often with our students that when mm -hmm. they film something and then the organization will say can we have this footage and right. we try very hard to say no I think um, when you do social justice work that has an element of promoting social justice. You have to be really careful with your relationships with organizations that have a specific agenda because on the one hand, for me, speaking for myself, I want the film to be a useful tool for organizing and education, but at the same time, I, I'm not making a brochure for an organization. So for me personally, I, um, I do allow subjects to see the film before it's finished um, because I want to know that they feel like it represents their experience with integrity, but um, I'm not going to just make changes because they asked me to. So you showed the film? Yes. When it was in the fine cut stage, so there wasn't a lot of room left, um, but uh, if there had been any major um, concerns about accuracy or anything I, I would have wanted to hear that yeah I mean from did them. they have yeah. any changes or things because obviously you don't want to make mistakes which right is one reason to do right that. right yeah. right um 
Amy wanted me to remove the line where she says she doesn't know what a, she didn't know what a Marxist was, <laughs> and we didn't do that because I thought it was really endearing. She does know what a Marxist is, obviously, and she yeah. doesn't identify that way. But so there were there were like little things like that where they're like, oh, I really don't look good in that. I shot. don't look good. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was a big one, <laughs> right? Um, and how did you get around that? Well, you know, you reassure them that obviously we can't change you know, how everybody looks on election night, you know, <laughs> just it is what it is. But, um, but just reassure them that they're coming across very well and that it's all part of the greater service of telling this story. And all of them had agreed to be part of the project because they felt like no matter what happened with their elections, it would be worth telling the story of what it's like for ordinary people to run for Congress. I'm very interested in the financing of it. Yeah, and how, how you did that? So, so um, we had a, a, a small crew and a really tight budget. My my husband and I have a, a lean production team where uh, I shoot and he edits, and, and we both, you know, produce and direct. I was uh, the lead on this project, but we ended up bringing in a third producer uh, about 18 months into the project in the middle of production. Um, but we, uh, we really ha did not receive external funding for a long time. So for the first year of the project, we were just fitting it in between freelance jobs, as I mentioned. You had no backers? Zero at no, first. No one. You're doing it all yourself. We, well, yeah. So we were traveling around going into debt, um, which is not advisable, but it's not uncommon in, in documentary. And, uh, you know, we didn't have to go into the kind of debt that we would have had to if we were paying cinematographers and editors. Um, so ha being able to handle those, those skills ourselves was crucial, but obviously there were travel expenses. And at a certain point it became clear the primary season was coming up, we'd chosen our characters, but it was, we were getting rejected from all of the funders that had supported our previous project. And um, uh, we decided to do a Kickstarter campaign to just test the viability of the project and I remember thinking okay well what's the minimum we need to do like two weeks in each location leading up to the primary. What was that amount? That amount was uh, $25,000 which would have been which was a very very tight budget for that and um, we ended up raising more than that because that work you do doing outreach for a Kickstarter campaign can activate networks of larger donors. We also had a fiscal sponsor, so we were able to collect tax-deductible donations as well. Um, and we also got our first grant through putting out, uh, because a lot of times um, crowdfunding campaigns can catch the attention of um, institutional backers. Um, that are looking to see whether a project has an audience. So I think that was really, that showed us that there was an audience for this film. These were people and institutions that wanted to back us, not knowing what the outcome of the election was going to be, because we knew that was an issue for this project. But um, that, uh, so, you know, after she won, we, we had, you know, conversations already in process with um, various other financing entities and a lot of those did come through after. And did did your sales agent and all of that happen after yes. she won? So it was kind of like she won and oh my goodness we have this yes. material. So clearly, and, yeah. yeah, clearly the project moved to a different yeah. position after she won and there was a lot, there was distributor interest. We did decide to, to finance independently and not uh, sell to a distributor until we got to Sundance. 
Um, we, we didn't even raise our, our full budget before we got to Sundance. Uh, we were, but we, were, we got enough to be able to finish the film. And um, that was, uh, I think, also just very much about the way this film was produced with a small crew willing to put in those long hours. I'm wondering, I mean, we all know what's happened with um, AOC, but what yeah. about the other three women? What's the update on, on what they're doing? Yeah, well, um, Corey and Paula are both running again. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, wow. Corey is running for the same seat in Missouri's first district uh, uh -huh. for House. Paula is running for the Democratic nomination for the other Senate seat in West Virginia, which is up this year. Um, Amy is, uh, is doing um, accounting and financial services for progressive campaigns um, and supporting other candidates, but she's sitting out this election cycle, may or may not run again. Um, but we haven't heard the last of any of them, for sure. I always find it fascinating with documentaries. Um, the arcs of the stories, individual stories, seem to all line up. Was that luck or was that really looking through the footage to kind of make it, I guess you can't do that because it's documentary, right? So you're not really guiding, but how do you, how do you dig through the, the footage? Well, uh, there's definitely nothing uh, that's staged in here. So, so everything that you see did happen. There were a, a, you know, a few things that, uh, I had to, things like Alexandria riding on the subway, like we had to arrange like to catch her riding on the subway, but I don't think that that's, you know, that's certainly true. That's the type of thing that she, she does. Take she the does subway. take the subway. I mean, maybe not as much anymore, but certainly during the campaign. So in terms of, you know, clearly there's a, uh, you know, there, you don't mess with the reality of what's actually happening, but in the edit, you know, we, we do uh, move, chronology around a little bit. I like to think of it uh, the journalistic equivalent of like a New Yorker article where you're putting details out there in an order that is going to help the audience understand the story in a, in a way that's going to keep them reading so that they, they catch it all as opposed to this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened, right? Um, so we did move a few things around respecting the integrity of beginning, middle, and end. The, the biggest change of um, chronology is putting the Missouri primary for Corey before New York. So that actually did happen after it. But um, it did work a lot better for the story to do it otherwise, and it wouldn't have added anything to do it the other way around. Um, so we felt like that was you know, a ch something that we could live with. But you know, every filmmaker kind of comes to their own conclusion about what they feel like is permissible there. I personally don't feel like that takes away from the truth of the story. Hi, I'm a documentary film student here, and right now we're trying to identify characters for our master's thesis. And my question is, did you have other characters in mind or people that you were sort of vetting, and did you film with them and then decide to cut that? or? Kind of what was that process like? Yeah, so um, I, I did like a, a few, I mean, I liked a lot of the people that I spoke to of those 25 that I interviewed. A lot of that was on the phone, some of it was in person. And um, there were a few others that I had more extended conversations with about maybe we'll make it out to, to visit you. Um, and I, we didn't end up doing significant filming with anybody else that we filmed with a couple others at these events where multiple candidates were, 
um, but we didn't do any we didn't do any home visits or uh, you know district visits with any others besides these four. We really didn't have a lot of, of the budget for it. We just um, the the way that we made the film was really to sort of decide who are we going to follow. They've got to be people that we're going to want to stick with. And, um, and, and I, I find phone interviews to be a great way to get through that first kind of uh, hurdle. You get a sense of how someone talks, what their personality is like, what their personal story is, what, what keeps them going. If they sound like they're giving you a rehearsed answer or something more spontaneous, if they are you know, kind of more guarded or if they're willing to show some emotion, um, does it sound like uh, you know, the stakes are, are really high for them in a way that is going to work for film. You know, so there's all kinds of ways you can ask those questions without getting too deep because you don't want to like spoil your conversation that you'll have on camera later. But, um, but I find that process to be a really useful tool for kind of identifying the first round. And, and I did, by, by the time we committed to any of these um, candidates, I had met them all and shot with them at these um, events with multiple candidates. Yeah. Hi, it's so delightful. And I have two quick questions, but one is they're both related to sort of access and shooting verite. The moment when she finds out that she wins, right? So she's walking towards the restaurant. She realizes something great is happening. She dashes through the door and there she's got to talk her way into the restaurant. You're behind two or three other people. And I know that feeling of like, oh my God, I'm going to miss the shot. Did, was there like a, what was the negotiation to get past those people? Did you? Riley pushed me past. <laughs> yeah. No, Riley deserves like a producer credit on this film. Um, so, so Riley pushed me past, but I also had a second camera person inside. Um, to get so, at the other direction. Right, to get yeah. the other angle. And luckily, I mean, uh, so he knew what was happening before I did, <laughs> obviously, and he was filming the New York One reporter. And so that when, when you get inside the bar, that's shot from two cameras, and it's basically that whole thing happens in, in real time. But I did make it in uh, right past her, fortunately, and uh, we got that whole thing with two angles, which was pretty cool. And the other question is, when you make documentaries, especially when they're verite, it's often really hard to know when you're done. And she wins, so that's an obvious point, but she's, you know... Like things are happening to her every day and now she's gonna you know, go to Congress. I mean, did you have that thought process of like, I really wanna keep going? Yeah, absolutely. And we did continue to shoot through the fall. We shot the election night uh, in, in the fall, not nearly as dramatic as this election night. We shot the swearing in and, uh, but it, it just, at a certain point you're editing and there's just kind of a sense of what works and like, what the internal logic of the material is. And uh, it just worked this way. It just felt like there was an elegance to sort of turning our cameras off when the rest of the world's cameras turned on. Because the story that we had was the story that no one else had, which is what happened before anyone started paying attention to her. And so it kind of, it kind of worked. And then of course, you know, we had the other characters, we were committed to making it, you know, a, a film that was about this movement. If we had continued to follow her into this other trajectory, that was, it uh, felt like a different story. So this was the internal logic of, of this film. 
my question is kind of about presentation. So the film opens with AOC like getting herself ready and also talking about how male politicians have basically two default fashion settings. Um, and every one of the candidates in different ways touches on either like physical or attitudinal presentation of themselves. And I was curious how you saw them developing their public personas as you were following them. That's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the original idea for this project was ordinary people are getting nominated and recruited to run for Congress, and then they have to transform themselves into a viable candidate for federal office. What's that gonna look like? Um, so that transformation itself was part of the concept of what we wanted to look out for, and it was some of the stuff that I asked them about, and um, we tried not to be repetitive. You know, what you want to do in a, in a story with multiple characters like this is have them, you know, speak to one another's experience in a way that feels coherent without being repetitive. Um, so they, they, they all had experiences with body image, but Corey's, you know, description of that was the most dramatic, so we kept, we kept that in. Um, and it's, it's funny that that scene at the beginning that scene, which everybody loves now, of, of her getting ready, was in like, I don't know how many grant applications that got rejected. So it's not like it was inherently amazing. <laughs> it's amazing in retrospect. Um, <laughs> but um, in any case, they all got more confident. I mean, they all got better at, you know, quickly answering questions. They all became more, um, you know, comfortable speaking publicly. Yeah. My question is about kind of the stylistic approaches you did to kind of capture the emotions in like the rooms and the spaces. So I want to know like more about the process of how you selected certain like shots to show this certain emotion. I mean, I think as an observational cinematographer, you're always looking for those details. Um, it's tricky because you're also listening to what people are saying. Um, but you can't get too caught up in the verbal uh, and you can't just swing the camera between who's talking and who's not talking because a lot of times the reaction of the person who's not talking is more interesting. Um, and I'm shooting with one camera for the most part. I mean that scene of the victory, I knew we needed two cameras for that night because of the way the whole thing was going to go down. But, um, but that's the only scene that was shot with two cameras. So when shooting for coverage, you're looking for you're looking for reaction shots anyway, but particularly kind of trying to keep abreast of the emotions that are happening in the room so that you can capture those moments. And a lot of times, you know, particularly with your main characters, and it's something I always say if I am hiring someone else to, to shoot, and, um, you know, be sure to get lots of shots of the character not talking, right? Because um, a lot of times they'll be showing emotion um, when they're not talking. And then, the magic of cinema, um, one of my very first film class, uh, there, there's like this exercise that they, they do with, uh, where you can, it's like the same shot, of like a neutral shot of a face, but depending on what you put under it and next to it, it'll be interpreted differently. So, um, so you know, you can, if, you know, I, I keep going back to the subway as an example, but like it's pretty neutral, right? Like she looks a little bit contemplative, but you know, that obviously wasn't going to be like a jubilant scene, but, uh, but it could go in a lot of different directions. So you're also looking for kind of neutral, non-talking moments that in the context of editing the emotion of something that's happening, 
can maybe feel more emotional. But I mean, I think it's a combination of all that stuff. But it's definitely like this sort of shooting that type of thing is a little bit of a, it's like improvisational performance. Um, I think you, you have to be very on and very, you know, attuned to what everyone else is doing, but also keeping track of, of your own stuff and, and the layers that are going on. So it's thinking, it's a little bit like playing jazz or improvisational music, I think. I'm just wondering what your, like, what your original mission in creating this documentary was and how you wanted people to feel um, and what message you want to make sure to get across. I really want people to take away from this, um, you know, the range of possible forms of participation that exist in a democracy and, you know, our democracy is imperfect. All of the problems that uh, existed before this film, are, you know, still exist. But whether it's every, everything from voting to volunteering on a campaign or in your community to running for office, I hope people feel like you know, there's a place for their voice in the democratic process. So that was always what we wanted people to get, and that's still what I hope people get out of it. Did that change your perspective? Did shooting this documentary end up changing your perspective on the community and politics? I think what changed me was just the experience of working with these amazing women and how, um, you know, I will never think the same way again about, you know, what it means to really take the most difficult experience you've ever had in your life and turn that into power and strength to move forward in your life. So that's what I learned from them and, and from making this film. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much to Rachel Lears for taking the time to speak with us here at Columbia. If you haven't seen the film yet, it's streaming on Netflix and I highly recommend it. And it'll be interesting to see how Cori Bush and Paula Jean Swearingen fare in this year's elections. Coming up for us this year in On Assignment episodes, we'll be featuring conversations with several of this year's DuPont winners, journalists from CBS, CNN, PBS, the big podcasts of the year, and of course, the local reporters who are so important, including a fascinating one with local investigative reporters who came to class the day after our ceremony and talked to students about their shoe leather reporting. One of them, Charlie Specht, who took on the Catholic Church in Buffalo, talks about feeling like a stalker when he followed a whistleblower in his car into a parking lot where he got her to follow her conscience to expose her powerful boss, the bishop. And those are the kinds of things that students really need to hear. Absolutely. Another reporter, Joe Bruno, describes how his producer corroborated sources online while he was camped out in a North Carolina McDonald's for hours because it was the only place for miles where he could get the internet. <laughs> yeah, gotta get it done. Anyway, it was great hearing all the behind the scenes, and it was very inspiring for our students. I was certainly inspired. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad and former DuPont fellow Christina Shaman with the help of our current DuPont fellows, Carissa Kiambau and Jack Rossiter-Munley and also produced by our DuPont coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at, at Columbia Journal. Until next time. <laughs>